Good afternoon. My name is Carol Doherty. I'm the director here at the New House, and I'm happy to welcome you here this for sunny for a change um, afternoon to the next installment in the New House Distinguished Writer Series. This afternoon, we have Nina Ravor and Christian Campbell here to read. Um, it's been it's a fabulous series. We've brought writers of all kinds, poets, short story writers, novelists. Um, from all around the world here in our cozy little living room um, for great afternoons of reading and writing and talking about conversations. And maybe I should remind people to turn off their phones, <laughs> beepers, pagers, and all those kinds of things. Uh, the host for today's reading is Elena Kreef, who is a member of the Women's and Gender Studies Department here at Wellesley College. And this year, I have the great good fortune to have her as a fellow at the Newhouse Center while she's on leave. Elaine is the author of Imaging Japanese America, The Visual Construction of Citizenship, Nation, and the Body, a book that revisits the visual archives surrounding the World War II and post-war Japanese American internment experience. And she's currently working on a book called Shadow Traces that explores what a history of Asian women in America would look like if it was conceptualized through the language of photography. Elena's intellectual interests are far-reaching and ever-expanding, as I've come to know firsthand this term. They straddle Asian-American cultural studies, comparative ethnic studies, women's studies, autoethnography, and visual culture. And I, I can only imagine she's going to be a great host and ask wonderful questions um, this afternoon. So I'll hand things over to Elena. For those of you who are not familiar with our format, the authors will read first, um, then they will chat with Elena for a little bit, and then we open up the conversation to you. And at the end, we have books available for sale and to be uh, signed by the authors. So I'll hand things over to Elena. Thank you, Carol. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our two distinguished writers today. Um, so I will introduce both of them, and then they will, I'll have them come up, and they, can, and they can read back to back. Christian Campbell was born in Freeport, Grand Bahama, and studied at McAllister College in Minnesota, the University of Oxford at Balliol College, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and at Duke University, where he received his PhD. Currently, he is a professor of English at the University of Toronto. His poetry and essays have been widely published in Callaloo, Indiana Review, Small Acts, Poetry London, New Caribbean Poetry, The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South, and The Rutledge Companion to Anglophone Caribbean Literature. Christian's new book, Running the Dusk, was a finalist for the Cave Canaan Prize, and it was also shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection and was also very recently shortlisted for the Guyana Prize for Literature's inaugural Caribbean Award. And it also won the Attleboro First Collection Prize this year, uh, and it will be celebrated in Great Britain in early November. And you should know that the Attleboro Prize is the oldest one of its kind in the UK. Attleboro judge Joe Shapcott called the collection a, quote, bravura performance, describing it as an energetic, fluid, and musical and full of loss, hope, and imagination. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Yusuf Komenyaka says, running the dust gives us a new voice for Caribbean arts and letters, and Christian Campbell is one of the very few perfectly suited to accept this mantle. His poems don't address the obvious in a tumultuous, in a, in a tumultuous beautiful landscape of hearts and minds, personal and public rituals, but his voice dares to take a step beyond to bridge the diaspora of the spirit. 
If you're holding running the, dus the dusk in your hands, you are lucky to be facing the gutsy work of a long-distance runner who possesses the wit and endurance, the staying power of authentic genius. This first collection is controlled beauty and strength, and the exhilaration of images and music encountered are necessary and believable. Nina Revor was born in Japan and grew up in Tokyo, Wisconsin, and Los Angeles. She did her undergraduate work at Yale and received her MFA from Cornell University. She's also taught at Antioch University, Cornell, Occidental College, and also at Pitzer College. She is the author of four novels, The Necessary Hunger, Southland, The Age of Dreaming, and her most recent book that just came out this year, Wing Shooters. Uh, Southland was a Los Angeles Times bestseller. It was also a best book of 2003, a book since 76 pick, an Edgar Award finalist, and winner of the Pharaoh Grumley Award and the Lambda Literary Award. Her newest book, Wing Shooters, was listed in Oprah Magazine's Books to Watch For and is also winner of the Indie Booksellers Choice Award. Publishers Weekly described it as a remarkable, accomplished story of family and the dangers of complacency in the face of questionable justice. The Los Angeles Times writes, Wing Shooters is a searing, anguished novel about racial bigotry in a small, insulated Wisconsin town. And James Harris at Prairie Lights Books writes that Revor's voice vibrates with a spiritual and physical isolation without adornment or illusion that is reminiscent of the writings of Carson McCullers. And I told Nina yesterday that when I was reading Wing Shooters uh, this weekend, I got to the last 25 pages and I thought that I was going into cardiac arrest from how fast my heart was racing because of her novel's dark race to the finish. Both writers today possess the gift and the genius for storytelling, craft, and beauty in their prose and poetry. Nina has a style that gently unfolds and envelops you as she takes you on a journey into worlds that are both familiar and strange and unforgettable. And Christian reminds us why it is that we need to turn to poetry. Because sometimes, as he put it so beautifully yesterday, you just got to have the precision cut of the diamond. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to these two distinguished writers, Christian Campbell and Nina Revor, and what I hope will be the first of many visits to Wellesley College. Um, give thanks, Elena. Thank you so much for that generous and warm welcome. And it's also been wonderful chatting with you. And you know, thank you for hosting me. Um, I also have to give thanks to Colin Channa, who most of you are familiar with. I understand that this writer series is uh, his baby. Um, and Colin is one of the founders of the miraculous Calabash Literary Festival in Jamaica. Um, and I had the great privilege of reading in that festival in 2002 and in its last year in 2010 and have attended multiple years as well. Um, and I realized that uh, Elena was also at Calabash and she saw me in 2010 and then Nina and I met at Calabash in 2008. Um, so I feel like that is we're from the tribe of Calabash, right? Uh, and I also met Margaret at Calabash, I realized, so it, it's a tribe. 
right? Really and truly. Um, I also want to give thanks to Carol and to Jane Jackson um, and to all of you for coming. It's a real privilege and honor to be here. So I'm going to read from my book, Running the Dusk. And what I want to do is just read the epigraphs um, to give you a sense of what this universe is like. So the first epigraph is from Jean Genet, um, Prisoner of Love, and it reads, the hour when street lamps are lit in the city and which children try to drag out so that they can go on playing, though their eyes, suddenly active, are closing in spite of themselves. The hour in which, and it's a space rather than a time, every being becomes his own shadow, and thus something other than himself. The hour of metamorphoses when people half hope, half fear that a dog will become a wolf. And the second epigraph is from Pablo Neruda from the poem, Himno y Regreso. En tu remota tierra ha caído esta luz difícil, which I translate as, all this difficult light has fallen on your lonely land. So the first poem I'll read is called Goodman's Bay 2. And the epigraph for this poem is from the great Aimé Césaire. O oh, friendly light, O oh, fresh source of light. Straight to the bush to gather cracked bottles of beer and rum, shards of sea glass smoothed by wind and sand. We Haitian Bahamian descendants Burial society flock crawl through the night. Since the light at dusk is like muslin, we lay the cold body of this man then on the shore of Goodman's Bay. How he wash here, we don't know, but the workers clearing the beach say, this him. John Goodman, he named originally Jean-Paul Delat, brother of Stephen Dillett first colored man in parliament. Come here on a boat from Haiti back then, back again, so we jewel the edges of his body with shattered bottles, then bear him to the foot of Casarinas in order that his born silhouette self may freely flash and prance. Luminous shadow lifting from the sand of this beach named after a black man. So the second poem I'm going to read um, is a poem that I'll say I'll read thinking of Derek Walcott, who uh, I'm so grateful to um, know in poetry and in life. And I'm so grateful to, for his generosity and friendship over the last, over the last year. And so thinking of Derek's white egrets. Um, this poem is called Mangroves, but what I want to do, um, thinking of the great poet from the Dominican Republic, Donberto Rawlings in the audience there, I read a translation of the poem by um, our friend uh, and my colleague, Nestor Rodriguez. And so the poem in Spanish is called Manglares. El crepúsculo 
manglar nuboso afincando en la maravilla. Dragones chinos que se acoplan o bien esa mujer grávida. El, al mando de un carro de guerra de los legionarios. Nubes tan densas como la barba de Whitman. Los ángeles tienen afro. Y bajo el manglar de ensueño hoteles. Casarinas colosales dispuestas a contraluz. Cuidadas y humeantes. Regresó de los manglares junto a estas garzas orgullosas. Intuyo que saben mucho más que yo. Debemos regresar a la orilla de esta noche inédita. Mangroves. Dusk and the mangroves of clouds which sit low into reverie. Chinese dragons mating or big woman riding chariot. Clouds thicker than Whitman's beard. All angels have afros. Beneath them, the hotels, giant casarinas in the half dark, sawed off and smoking. Now I must return from the mangroves with proud egrets who know so much more than me. We must go back now to the shore of this new night. Okay. Um, this poem is called Dover to Accra. And um, I'm, I'm a poet that's obsessed with names. And so when you come from and live in the new world, as I do and as we do, um, there's something I'm always noticing and thinking about around the question of naming. So I lived in Barbados for about a year, and, or a little less than a year. And so there's a place in Barbados um, that's called Dover Beach, like the poem, like the Matthew Arnold poem. Um, and then there's a place called Accra Beach that's spelled like Accra in Ghana. So I said, hmm, this is ripe for the picking. So this poem is called Dover to Accra. I go running from my woman's house in Dover Gardens to Dover Beach in order to keep my body strong as well as to reason with myself and take her route on the road, left, right, left, then follow the curve down to the beach, keep south. This area is bourgeois Barbados with houses not extravagant but comfortable in their gorgeousness. Crowds of bougainvillea, croton, hibiscus, pastel houses with Spanish roofs, terracotta, Spanish roofs, hurricane shutters, large terracotta vases. I want a house here, I think, as I run, and suddenly the gardens turn. A pink Italian restaurant, two German women in bath suits and flip-flops on the people's road. A taxi driver posted on the corner outside of the Casarina Beach Club like a sentinel. At attention under his flags, broken tridents, union jack, stars, and stripes. Any minute now, I expect to see a dreadlocks man, and I turn the curve past stands of coconut souvenirs. I am running this morning to Dover Beach, not going someplace where 
the cliffs of England stand. But before I know it, Arnold gets bust in the chops, his bushy mutton chops by Sean Paul. Break out, break out, Brookwine, break out, break out. At last, my dreadlock spar toting a boombox on his shoulder, more and more white people, and Dover Beach is there. Running twice through, I meet an obstacle course of umbrellas, palms, and lounge chairs, cradling people as red and wrinkled as salt prunes. They are English, so they want to sunbathe and then see their ruins. Up the surf are a few braiders and renter dreads, but Bajans don't quite hustle and shuffle like us. I am here in Dover in Christchurch, Barbados, with my woman who is beautiful and waiting for me, who has always waited for me. And when I return from my run, we will spend the day at Accra Beach. Kamal Brathwaite said, Barbados, most English of West Indian islands, but at the same time nearest as the slaves fly to Africa. We will go from Dover to Accra with my woman's friends, two generations of Bunda Majak, pretty Dominican women, and I will tell them all that their beaches are nothing compared to my pink coral sand and water like blue chiffon in the Bahamas, Bahamar, shallow sea. I will go the color of molasses mixed with bronze, the tone of a sweet dark rum in Accra, and we will all swallow the sun whole on Accra Beach, near the hotel in little England, little Africa, in love with skin on the second day of the year. This next poem is called Oregon Elegy. Is anyone from Oregon here? Really happens. Uh, I've never been to Oregon either. It's called Oregon Elegy. I once told a friend who was going to Oregon for Christmas with his girlfriend, he'd be the only black person there, and in fact, if you shuffle Oregon like a seasoned minstrel, it spells Negro, but with an extra O, as if to make a groan, nearly a shout, perhaps a moment of fright, O Negro in Oregon. He died laughing and told me, that's word lynching. And I wondered if we could also lynch words, string them up, sever them, tattoo them with bullets and knives. If we could hold a barbecue for language swaying with the branches soon picked to silence by crows. Words soaked in coal oil then set ablaze a carnival of words sacrificed over rivers, from bridges, from trees, two ripe words dangling from branches just beyond our reach. Like Alonzo Tucker in 1906, shot twice, then hanged from the Fort Street Bridge by 200 men, arched into one white arm because we wonder, we know, a white woman said he raped her. I want to tell my boy blacks weren't wanted in Oregon at first, but what do I know? I've never set foot on Nez Perce land where exactly 100 years after Tucker, he could go west to one edge of America because he loves his woman enough to be the very last Negro on earth. 
All right, um, I'll squeeze in a couple more. Okay. Let me see if I can squeeze this one in. Okay, um, if you know anything about um, Rastafarian culture, one of the ways in which um, they talk about smoking marijuana, which is a sacrament, is um, to hold a medi or to hold a meditation. And it's a phrase I've always been fascinated with. Um, this poem is called, To Hold a Meditation. And then I dive serene as a turtle, goggles strapped tight. I am the bronze-haired man at Arawaki who dive for kunk all day. I am looking for shells and pebbles, bits of coral to turn over and over in my hands, but half hidden by the blue-brown reef is a body tombed in amber and seaweed. It is my grandfather, brought back now by day-clean tide, having set his body to sea since time. Laid out on the shore, he is a shell of the sea's patience, still in his blind white catechist gown, now all laced with seaweed. Coral has cocooned his legs, caked his graying hair, eyes closed with two stones. All on shore rejoice my find, the brethren, the braiders, the cigar sellers, the lovers. We smoke spliffs from pages of the Bible, first Peter, then Matthew, then all of Psalms. We crouch under Casarinas, praise these trees older than anything we know. We hold a meditation. Um, this poem I have to do, given the recent um, crisis in England, in London. So I'm just going to read the background, um, the note to it. When I first, the first time that I went to England was the summer of 2001. Um, and there's a summer of race riots. On July 16, 2001, Derek Bennett was shot dead by police in Brixton, South London, after brandishing a gun-shaped lighter. On July 20, 2001, a peaceful demonstration over Bennett's killing in Brixton escalated into a riot, which I witnessed. On December 15, 2004, an inquest returned the verdict that Bennett, a 29-year-old black man, had been lawfully killed. An, up, an appeal upheld this decision. Also thinking of Troy Davis. So this poem is called Rudical. Derek Bennett killed by the police, and it's also after a painting by Matisse called Ikari, or Icarus, from the jazz series, 1943. I, who born 24 years since the wind rush come, 24 years, life of a man. I, who born four gold bullets, life of a man. I, who born, and because we suck the neon of the streets, and because we tote a solar plexus of islands, it's true. And because we yuck out the blue heart of night, right. And because our heads gather thick as a blood clot, teach them. And because we eat out the honey of mad laughter every time. 
and because we outrun the delirium of street lights, more fire. And because we are bugs scuttling from the lifted rock, and because, and because, and, and, and because each eye hole grows iridescent with the moon, and because we holler for the blood-clad sun, and because we mourn the burst testes of the stars, and because we scan cross rivers of blood, mine, New Cross, mine, Oldham, Notting Hill, Bradford, Brixton, mine, too, Nassau, Laventil, Bridgetown, Kingston, Britain has branded an X. This rolled throat of killings, this septic eye of maggotry, this seed of Mars, this blasted plot, this hurt realm, this ugly island, this England. So I'll read just two more poems. Um, oh, and Elena has some North Carolina connections. So this poem in some ways came out of my um, experience of living in the American South. And as someone sort of obsessed with language and names and naming, um, I was always fascinated with um, African-American Southern vernacular, right? Um, so, um, yeah, thinking about that, so, so I was in this space, this sort of ferment of language where black southern vernacular was prominent and, and at the time had the, you know, fortune or misfortune to be studying Freud, um, <laughs> <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, the ego, the id, the superego, you know, Freud. And so if you know anything about Freudian psychoanalysis, you know that the id is that sort of most primal part of the self, right, to put it crudely. And so thinking about the id and then thinking about the way that uh, black, Southern, black Southerners say light skin. They don't say light skin. They say, does anyone know? They say light skinned it, exactly. Um, so this poem is called Light Skinned Id. For <laughs> light skinned id for Neruda for the South. It so happens my id is red. Check the clues, my light skinned parts underneath my underwear if you pull the skin taut on the white hand side and down my wrists where the veins branch out like green pipes. My foot bottom and almost my eyes up close. It used to be my whole self until I was six for sure, but a brownness took over. Started swimming at nine, how sun and chlorine kissed the night into my skin. There was no turning back. But my id is good and red-boned. Like slicing open a pear for the surprise of its flesh. Look hard, there's a murmur of bronze in my skin. I'm a peanut butter Oreo, an apple dipped in molasses. I'm a broad dish of creme brulee. Oh, the chiaroscuro of myself. Still not freed from Freud, I'm fried on the outside. What a brown on me, since the color beneath my color is curried. It wants to come out, my high yellow id, always on the verge of beige. It wants me to ambi my skin to blossom peach all over. My id has such a need. 
Here it goes with its libido of gold, clashing with the ego, my eye, a browner negro, and the superego whose irradiant absence of white. He thinks he's in charge. It makes me act like I'm better than people, my id. It wants what it wants. It makes me lick melted margarine and steal copper coins from bums. Makes me bathe in mango juice, pour sour milk down my ears and sign checks in blood to prove it. On the forms I fill in other and scribble yellow on the inside in red ink. I suck the nectar beneath my skin. My id's pretty niggerish for a mulatto. My id is everyone's Indian uncle. It's taking me to Hollywood on an undersong of cream. My id is color struck with itself. My id is El DeBarge. <laughs> my id, its job is to keep it light. How my id misses the 80s. <laughs> if only this amber at heart were enough, I have to praise it, I have to lull it with new roses, run my fingers along this sallow river of desire, stuck in the plantation kitchen, black ants dying in an orgy of honey. So, um, for my final poem, um, uh, this poem is called Iguana, and some of the names you may or may not recognize are um, the Amerindian or Aboriginal or First Nations names of the Caribbean. Um, that's also an uh, important part of my heritage. Iguana. My friend from Guyana was asked in Philadelphia if she was from Iguana. Iguana which crawls and then stills, which flicks its tongue at the sun. In history, we learned that Lucayans ate iguana, that Caribs, my grandmother's people, ate Lucayans, the people of Guanahani. Guyana, the colonial way with an eye, southernmost of the Caribbean, is iguana. Inagua, southernmost of the Bahamas, northernmost of the Caribbean, is iguana. Inagua crossroads with Haiti, Inagua of the salt and flamingos. The Spanish called it Ineagua. Water is to be found there, water, water everywhere. Guyana, in the language of Arawaks, Waiana, land of many waters, is iguana. Veins running through land, grooves between green scales. My grandmother from Maruga, southernmost in Trinidad, knew the names of things. She rubbed iguana with bird pepper. She cooked its sweet meat. The earth is on the back of an ageless iguana. We are all from the land of iguana, Huanora, Carib name for St. Lucia. And all the iguanas scurry away from me and all the iguanas are dying. Give thanks.
That was uh, wonderful, Christian. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for being here today. I know it's not a given that you come out on a Thursday afternoon when you could be doing something else. And I promise you that when I was in college, I probably wouldn't have come um, to, a, to an afternoon event that wasn't completely mandatory, So, and even some of the ones that were. So, um, But thank you, um, Elena, Carol, um, Jane, John. Uh, I've already made friends in my short time here. It's been great to be here. And, uh, of course, wonderful to see friends, uh, the, the Calabash Connection, uh, Margaret and Christian, Colin Channer, who's not here, but who's just an amazing guy. And uh, just, you know, one... One day in, uh, in Treasure Beach, Jamaica, I was walking down, I think this was the second time I was there, I was walking down a dirt road trying to get back to the hotel, to Jake's, and uh, a car very full of people with arms hanging out, you know, drove by and screeched to a halt, and, and you know, someone, a mutual friend of ours says, Nina, get, get in, you got to get in. And so I got in and I said, well, where are we going? And, and this is Roger. And, uh, and he said, to Kingston. And you have to understand that Kingston was two and a half hours away. Um, but, but in fact, he was just going to a party uh, that was just down the street where I met Christian, um, amongst you know, um, other amazing people. So, um, but it's wonderful to be here in Wellesley. Uh, you know, being from Southern California or having lived in Southern California for a long time, uh, seasons are a thing that you kind of visit. Um, and don't uh, experience, you know, on a regular basis. So it's wonderful to visit uh, Autumn here, and uh, you, have a, you have a beautiful campus. So I'm going to read three short sections of, from two of my books. Um, and first, I'm going to read from Wing Shooters, which is my most recent novel. Uh, this book centers around a half-Japanese kid named Michelle, um, but better known as Mikey, um, who's nine years old and is living with her white grandparents in a rural part of, of central Wisconsin. And the book deals both with uh, the, the extreme difficulties and prejudice that she faces being the only person of color um, in this uh, very homogeneous town, but also some of the joy um, and happiness she experiences uh, roaming around the countryside, as I did today, walking around your lake twice. Um, uh, and also, But most especially in her relationship with her grandfather, Charlie, who is... Uh, kind of a man's man, uh, hunter, former minor league baseball player, um, and she kind of worships him, and he takes her under his wing. So I'm going to read just the very first paragraph from Wing Shooters just to give you a sense of, of him and of the book. In my apartment in California, there hangs a picture of my grandfather. He is one of 12 men dressed in off-white baseball uniforms and plain dark caps, all seated in front of a boy in a baggy black suit. The men sit cross-legged or rest on one knee. Their bats lean together like logs on a campfire, surrounded by their gloves. Behind them stand two large boxy cars with a banner drape between them that reads, Buick Ball Club, Deerhorn, Wisconsin. Although the picture is posed, there is something about the quality of the players' postures and smiles that makes it seem like they just collapsed there, giddy and tired, and someone happened to capture the moment. The uniforms have a softer look than what ballplayers wear today. The caps are rounder and more pliable. The pants and jerseys looser. The gloves amorphous and lumpy. But the men look more like men. My grandfather, sitting in the lower right-hand corner, smiles at the camera from out of his open, handsome face as if he knows he'll live forever. The license plate on one of the Buicks has tags from 1925, and if the date is accurate, then my grandfather, Charlie LeBeau, is 19. Because of the cap, the usual shock of slick back hair that falls over his eyes, making him look playful and roguish, is held still. But even so, 
He is beautiful and knows it. Farther back in the picture, a young woman leans out the window of another car, resting her chin in her hand, and I imagine she is staring at Charlie. Everyone, for all of his life, always stared at Charlie. So that's the beginning. Um, and Mikey has a pretty tough time, uh, but her best friend, uh, she, she has a grandfather and she has her best friend who is a, uh, a Springer Spaniel named uh, Brett. And uh, if you notice that uh, on, the, on the jacket of the book, there's a picture, as John saw yesterday, of, uh, of a Springer Spaniel. Um, and if there's any, you know, correlation or, uh, you know, it's, it's completely coincidental. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Mikey is just kind of going through the town, and uh, things get more stirred up when a young black couple, uh, Joe and Betty Garrett, move into town. Uh, Betty to become a nurse at the local clinic, and Joe to become a long-term sub at the elementary school um, that Mikey attends. And this affects uh, her in a couple of ways. First, because she uh, completely identifies and becomes bonded to this couple because they're the only other people who are really other in this town. Um, but also uh, because the, the hatred um, and prejudice that had been placed on her is almost directly kind of transferred, picked up, and put onto the Garretts. Um, and the folks, the townsfolks, uh, basically try to move to get the Garretts pushed out of town. Uh, and this, this charge is led by Mikey's beloved grandfather, uh, Charlie, who doesn't get the contradiction between uh, his own unconditional love for his mixed-race grandkid and his... Uh, racism towards this black couple. So the second part I'm going to read is a scene that's about halfway through the book. Um, and this is after the Garretts have already moved to town. And it takes place at the elementary school. And it basically is a scene that involves two boys, Billy Coles and Kevin Watson, who appears a little bit later. By the time I made it out to the playground, Missy Calloway was sitting on my usual bench with Jessica Brown. I continued past them, beyond the kids playing handball and hopscotch, and headed for my second favorite spot. There was another wooden bench around the corner of the building toward the front of the school. This square area of concrete to the right of the swings did not have any grass or equipment. Because there was nothing to play with, it was usually empty. I liked to sit on that bench sometimes away from everyone else and lean my back against the wall. This physical distance made me less self-conscious about being alone. At least here, out of sight, I wouldn't get teased for it. But if someone approached me in a way that seemed like trouble, I could just slip around the corner, back in view of the teachers. On this morning, though, when I turned the corner, my usual space wasn't empty. Several boys had surrounded another boy I recognized as Billy Coles, one of the children from the trailers in the country. He was sitting on the bench, back pressed flat against the wall, the four other boys standing around him in a semicircle. One of them was leaning over him, finger pointing in his face. Billy kept trying to back up, but there was nowhere to go, so he just slipped a little further down the wall. He looked scared, and his eyes were darting between the other boys' bodies, looking for a path of escape. Other than me, Billy was the most unpopular child at school. He had dirty blonde hair that was jaggedly cut with a ponytail half a foot long. His face and clothes were often streaked with dirt, and his shoelaces were always knotted and clumped where they had broken and been tied back together. His fingernails were always dirty, and his nose often ran. I'd seen teachers recoil physically when they had to touch him. Billy had several equally dirty brothers and sisters whom I sometimes saw in town, at the ice cream parlor, or the movies, or in the grocery store. 
anywhere businesses were giving something away for free. His mother was a small, silent woman who came to the market to buy groceries with food stamps. His father was tall and skinny, with tied-back hair as long as Billy's. I sometimes saw him picking through garbage cans on the outskirts of town, and we'd both turn our heads away, embarrassed. Billy was not the only child at school from the country trailers. Once a week, a group of them were marched into the gym for a bath. But because he butted heads with the kids from town, he was the one who drew the most attention. I'd never particularly liked him myself, but right then I wanted to say, just slip to the left, turn the corner, and you'll be safe. You stink, Billy, said the boy who was leaning over him, and I saw that it was Dale Davis, the police chief's son. Dale was usually a decent boy and not a known bully. Why don't you go take a bath or something? He don't have a bathtub, Dale, said another boy, Walter. He's got to take him here. Oh, that's right, Dale said, as if this was news to him. You don't have a bathtub or a car or even a bedroom, ain't that right? Hell, if it wasn't for the bus that brought you to school, we wouldn't even know you were out there. Billy grimaced, as if these words were a physical assault. Leave me alone, Dale, he said miserably. You want me to leave you alone, huh, said Dale, standing up straight and crossing his arms. I'll bet you didn't tell that nurse to leave you alone. Now I understood. Dale usually didn't bother the country children, or any of the outcasts, really. But he'd been listening to his father, and his father knew that people had started going to the clinic. Billy looked up at him now, and his expression neither confirmed nor denied Dale's suspicion. Still, Dale stepped in close again. It's true, ain't it? She was out there, wasn't she? She was out at that clinic they made from the store. I had to go there, Billy protested. I was getting sick to my stomach and my head always hurt. I didn't know who the nurse was going to be. She touched you everywhere, didn't she, Billy? No. And I'll bet you liked it, too. No. They began pushing him, poking him, trying to get him to react. Emboldened by his anguish, stop it, in awkward attempts to defend himself. Their focus and excitement intensified with each passing moment, and then all four boys pressed around him so tightly that I could no longer make him out between their bodies. Billy's cries and the excited shouts of the boys who surrounded him were noticed by kids on other parts of the playground who began to rush over to watch. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a large adult figure come around the side of the building. It was Mr. Garrett. He must have been on recess duty that day, and he came whipping around the corner faster than I'd known an adult could move. A couple of the newcomers shouted out, Run! And the boys who'd cornered Billy all scattered, like flushed birds who fly in no particular direction in their desperate attempt to escape. Even Billy took off, as panicked as all the others. Hey, yelled Mr. Garrett, grabbing this way and that, but the boys slipped through his grasp. Hey, you're going to hear about this later. He turned toward the bench where Billy had been, looking at me for a moment, then looking back. And then, right after our eyes met, we both saw something else. One boy who hadn't gotten away. He was sprawled out on the pavement in front of the bench, and it looked like he tripped on the thick link chain that secured it to the playground. He pushed himself up into a sitting position, and I saw that it was Kevin Watson. His black hair was falling over into his eyes, and he was trying to catch his breath. Kevin pulled down the sleeve of his jacket and looked at his forearm. There was a large red scrape, and seeing this, he promptly began to cry. It looked bad, a deep scrape maybe four inches long, blood running down his arm, bits of dirt and rock pressed into the open flesh. 
When Mr. Garrett saw this, he gave up on the other boys and came rushing to Kevin's side. He knelt down on one knee and placed his hand on Kevin's shoulder. Are you all right, young man? Let me take a look at that, he said. No, Kevin cried out, flinching from his touch. I'm fine, I'm fine. Leave me alone. And there was something other than pain in his voice. What it sounded like was fear. Mr. Garrett must have heard it too. He backed off a bit, but still stayed close. It's all right, son, he said. I'm only trying to help. Now let me have a look at your arm. Kevin's face was covered with tears. His left hand was holding his sleeve up and cradling his right elbow, exposing his arm to the air. And when Mr. Garrett inched closer, gently curved his hand around Kevin's elbow and tilted up his forearm, the boy didn't flinch or pull away. Mr. Garrett carefully pulled out a few of the pebbles and then unfolded his handkerchief, pressing it just below the wound to wipe away the running blood. It's going to be okay, he said. It's just a bad scrape. Now let's get you up on your feet and we'll take you inside. Kevin nodded. He wasn't looking at Mr. Garrett, but he wasn't crying anymore either. Mr. Garrett held out a hand to help him, but Kevin refused it. Since his right arm was still elevated to keep the blood from running down, he turned to his left, pressing his hand to the ground to brace himself as he got his legs set under him. And as he rolled that way, face down, back end higher than the front, his jacket and shirt edged up his back, exposing 10 or 12 inches of skin. There was just a flash of something that shouldn't have been there, several dark strips of color. Then the clothes came back down and they were gone. I looked at Mr. Garrett's face and saw that he had seen them too. Kevin, he said, and now his voice sounded different. Stand here for a second. Let me look. And maybe Kevin thought the teacher was still talking about his arm because he didn't move away or protest. Maybe he'd forgotten what his clothes concealed, so accustomed was he to keeping his secret. Or maybe he knew exactly what was happening and wanted someone, some adult, just to see. When Mr. Garrett lifted the back of the jacket again, what he uncovered was a network of dark, thin marks, some just an inch or two long, some the entire width of Kevin's back. Many of them were long-heeled, hardened, and raised. They looked like a game of pickup sticks affixed to his flesh. But some were fresh, scabbed over, or still open, oozing tiny spots of red. I did not see how the blood hadn't soaked through his shirt. I did not see how he could lean back in his chair. Kevin had turned away from me so I couldn't see his face. But I saw Mr. Garrett's. When he let go of the jacket and straightened up, he looked like he was going to cry. The muscles in his cheeks were jumping and his eyes were pained. When he spoke, it was in a heavy voice I hadn't heard before. Kevin, he said, who did this to you? Now Kevin twisted away and took hold of his arm again. No one, leave me alone, he said, and then he ran away, back across the playground and toward the building. Mr. Garrett stood and watched him for a moment, and I had a sense then that he was taking measure, trying to figure out what to do. He lowered his head and shook it slowly, pressing his lips together. Then he straightened up and walked across the schoolyard. In the years that have passed since 1974, I've often wondered what would have happened if Mr. Garrett had kept his knowledge to himself. He could have let Kevin go home without telling anyone what he had seen. 
He could have just minded his business and let people go on as they always had. If Mr. Garrett had turned away from what we both saw that morning, it might have stayed a secret forever. For surely, I would never have revealed such troubling information. I would never have said a thing. So that sets up the uh, kind of ongoing uh, conflict that uh, carries through the rest of the book. Many bad things ensue. <laughs> Um, now I'm going to read a, a little bit, actually just the prologue of my second book, uh, Southland. Um, this book centers around uh, the murders of four black teenagers during the Watts riots. And it, uh, it involves a, a half, or actually no, uh, a Japanese-American girl named Jackie, actually not a girl, uh, law school student named Jackie Ishida, uh, who is in her last year of law school. And uh, her, this, the kids are found in the store that was once owned by her grandfather, um, who is a World War II veteran um, and hero who has just passed away when the book begins. And it, the, book, the story is set in the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles, which is one of the few and early, really organically racially mixed areas in LA or really anywhere. Um, but it was a place that even as early as the 20s and 30s um, was, was pretty mixed. And, uh, through the 40s and 50s and 60s was an area where particularly Japanese American and African American uh, communities uh, commingled. And uh, it's, it's kind of centered around a wonderful place, a real place called the Holiday Bowl, uh, where you could go in any time of the day or night and find elderly folks of all races, but particularly elderly black and Japanese in their 70s and 80s, who you knew had been friends from the time that they were teenagers, um, which was a really miraculous thing for me to find um, as a young uh, teenager um, I am uh, half Japanese and grew up in an area that was Japanese black, um, some Latino, um, some white, but largely black and Japanese. And all our kind of natural mixing of, of friends uh, was no big deal to us, but it was not always so welcomed um, or looked nicely upon by our parents um, who tended to, to um, stay more in, in single race groups. So when I, as a, as a young person, found uh, the Holiday Bowl, which is just a couple miles from where I lived, it was like finding my own family. Um, and uh, just a magical place. It was probably the only place in the country where on the same menu, because there's a coffee shop, you could have jambalaya um, and sushi. Um, it just, uh, the place completely reflected uh, you know, the neighborhood. And, you know, LA, particularly for those of you who have, you know, only, you know, heard about it and grown up only in the East Coast, you know, it's, it's clearly the images of the privilege and fake boobs and, you know, Hollywood and all of that. And all of that does exist too, but there is another city um, and, and uh, this, is, this is my city. So this book and particularly this prologue are, are my love letter to uh, Crenshaw and to Los Angeles. And the now in this is 1994. Now the old neighborhood is feared and avoided, even by the people who live there. Although stores wait for customers right down on the boulevard, people drive to the South Bay or even over to the West Side to see a movie or to do their weekly shopping. The local places sell third-rate furniture and last year's clothes. And despite the promises of city leaders in the months after the riots, no bigger businesses or schools are on their way. A few traces of that other time remain, a time when people not only lived in the neighborhood, but never chose to leave it. And if some outsider looked closely, some driver who'd taken a wrong turn and ended up on the rundown streets, if that driver looked past the weather-worn lettering and cracked or broken windows, he'd have a sense of what the neighborhood once was. 
The grand old library is still there and the first public school with a fireplace in each of the classrooms. The holiday bowl is still open, although it closes now at dusk, where men came in from factory swing shifts and bowled until dawn. There are places where old train tracks still lie hidden beneath the weeds, and if the visitor knelt and pressed his ear against the dulled metal, he might hear the slow rumble of the train that used to run from downtown all the way to the ocean. Now, the children feel trapped in that part of the city, and because they've learned from watching their parents' lives the limits of their futures, they smash whatever they can, which is usually each other. But then, in that different time, the neighborhood even had a different name. Angeles Mesa was a children's paradise. It was tableland, flat and fertile, and the fields of wheat and barley made perfect places for young children to hide. The older children borrowed their father's guns and hunted rabbits and squirrels because the Mesa was part of the growing city only in name. Everybody knew it was country. The children's parents loved the neighborhood too. The ones who grew up in cities, either there in California or in the dark, damp states of the Midwest and East, loved the space of the Mesa and the fresh air that carried the scent of jasmine in spring and oleanders in the summer. The ones from the South couldn't believe they'd found a place with the ease and openness of home, but only a train ride away from their downtown jobs. It was a train that had brought them in the first place. The Chamber of Commerce sent an exhibit train to tour around the country, passing out oranges and pictures of palm trees to anyone who'd take them. Hopeful newlyweds, coughing factory workers, old sharecroppers with hands hardened by years of labor, all bit into the sweet, juicy oranges and thought they tasted heaven. And the oranges were magical because instead of quenching people's appetites, they fed them. That yearning and anticipation started out in their taste buds and worked down into their hearts and stomachs until they grew teary-eyed with want. In Ohio, Mississippi, in Delaware, and Georgia, you could see people trailing California on wheels, stumbling down the track after the slow-moving train as if they'd follow it all the way across the country. And they did. Maybe not that day, not that season, not that year, but they did. Packed up their things and arranged for someone else to send them on. Gathered the family and headed out to California. Some of them went to Long Beach seeking work in the bustling shipyards or to Ventura to draw their livings from the sea. Some went to San Fernando to be closer to the oranges that first seduced them and some to the Central Valley to pick lettuce or grapes. And a few of them, after living someplace else for a year or several, after starting out in Little Tokyo or South Central or following the crops around the state, bought a plot of land in Angeles Mesa. The price was good, and what you got for it? Rich land nestled by wild hills. And if their neighbor spoke a different language, wore a different color skin, here, and only here, it didn't matter. Whatever feelings or apprehensions people had when they came, they learned to put them aside. Because their children played together, sat beside each other at the 52nd Street School. Because it was impossible to walk through the neighborhood without seeing someone different than you. Now, even the all are welcome church has steel bars over its windows, and half the storefronts stand empty and deserted. The strawberry fields and orchards are all buried under concrete, and lifelong residents won't leave their houses after dark. Those with the money, but not the heart, to leave the neighborhood completely, cross the boulevard and move into the hills. They never come down now, 
never stop at Mama's Chicken and Waffles or Otis's Barber Shop, which is closing in its 40th year for lack of business. But then, in that other time, which wasn't really so long ago, the corner market could not keep its shelves stocked, or the Kyoto Grill cook enough food, or the Love Lifted Me Church on Crenshaw, which is actually on Stalker, make enough space to accommodate the faithful. If a visitor had come through in 1958, he might have closed his eyes and listening to the voices around him, thought he'd taken a wrong turn and ended up in Texas. He might have walked into Harry's noodle shop and mistaken the town for little Tokyo. He might see a group of men just released from the Goodyear plant, crowded around a radio and listening to a ball game. They'd be sitting on milk crates in front of a market owned by a young Japanese man, a veteran, who'd worked there since he was a teenager, who hired local boys himself, and who'd heard so many of his customer stories, he could almost forget his own. The people who lived there, the people who laughed and drank and listened to the Dodgers, didn't know they were unusual. They didn't know that their disregard for rules observed outside the Mesa made them exceptions, and their example did not stand. Now, if that lost driver went through certain parts of the neighborhood, he would still see a few of the elderly residents, Japanese and black, in a place the rest of the city dismisses as ghetto. But their children and grandchildren, and their friends' children too, have moved elsewhere to build their own lives. In the city where history is useless and the future reinvented every day, no one has any need for game you hunted and cooked yourself, for berries stolen off the vine, for neighbors in pairs and threesomes sitting on stoops with cups of coffee, faces lifted to accept the morning sun. No one thinks about the neighborhood, its little corner market. No one, including the children of the people who live there. Thank you. Comfortable and the red chairs. We're the first guests of the Lenny Cripps show. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> thank you so much. I feel like I want the, I want to hold the microphone and like Phil Donahue. Um, thank you. That was beautiful, thank both you. of you. What a treat. Um, uh, I have a couple of questions. I think I'm, I'm going to pose to these two, and then we'll open it up for Q and A from all of you because you've been so patient. Um, so I will give you all time. I promise. Um, I want to open with just a general question about biography and writing. Um, I guess I can observe that both Nina and Christian, you have such rich, beautiful, complex, multiracial identities. And um, also, you both lived across this diverse range of global geographic spaces you've called home, from Bahamas, Barbados, um, uh, Wisconsin, Los Angeles, New York, Toronto. So my question is simply this, uh, how does biography shape, influence, and produce both what you feel compelled to write, who you feel compelled to write, about to write, and also where? So maybe Nina first and then, and then Christian. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's always such a common question, particularly, I'm sure with poetry as much as with fiction, of, you know, this is, this is, you know, how much of this is you or how much of this is, is biographical. And it's both more and less than you think. 
you know, that, that uh, sometimes when there might be a setting um, that, that, or a set up that appears to be really close to what your own life um, you know, story was, but what you do with it is something completely different. Exactly. Um, but, and by the, you know, the same token, sometimes um, by putting, you know, telling a story or creating a character that's very, very different than what I appear to be, it makes it easier for me to open up and become more personal. So for example, you know, my, my, the, the protagonist of my last book was a 73-year-old Japanese man, a former silent film star. And um, you know, to me, that was in, in some ways my most autobiographical book. Because even though it sounds like he's very different from me, the, through that mask, I was able to, you know, through that character, I was able to kind of pour more of myself into him safely than with a, a character that might appear to be more like me on the surface. Hmm. Well, I think um, this is the kind of question that poets get more than fiction writers, actually, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the assumption is, mm -hmm. is that the I in the poem is the I of the poet, right? Um, and, you know, I, th I think I felt in different ways ab about that. You know, when my, first, my book first came out, I was interested in rejecting um, the association just because, um, I, I, you know, I think that assumption um, undermines the, the artistry of the work, right? But I also think that, you know, sort of completely rejecting the eye of the eye is not, is disingenuous. What I think actually um, is... I'm, I'm less interested in if the eye of the, the poem is the eye of the poet, but more interested in what's at stake for that eye, right? Um, so for me, um, of course I'm drawing from the personal, right? I mean, there's also a way in which if we make it, if we write it, there's something personal about that, even if, like Eliot we want to reject the personal, right? You know, the wastelands about his breakdown. We can think about all of those things. But um, for me, I'm interested in terms of your question, Elena, about um, I guess the kind of multiplicity of my heritage and journeys, you know, being this nomad, being Bahamian and Trinidadian and having roots in Grenada and Colombia and living in all of these different places that um, I suppose maybe my approach in terms of composition um, to the I and to the relationship with biography and the poetry has to do with a kind of distillation which is about mapping, right? or remapping, um, creating my own map of all of these um, different spaces, the geographies of my heritage and my own journeys to create some kind of other world that I think of a book of poetry as, as a kind of map, right? I'm so intrigued with just the combination of like mapping, remapping, and masking. And Nina, I would say, I was stunned because I was, I would say, when I'm reading your work, I would say that you know, I, I had you pegged as nine-year-old Mikey, but not 73-year-old Seshu Hayakawa, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> but wow, that makes sense, though. Um, I have another just general question for both of you about the writing process. Um, Christian, I know that in an interview, you have said that when it comes to the tricky question of influence in your writing, 
that uh, your book of poetry is like, quote, a quarrel with the self and ancestor. Mm. And Nina, you have said in an interview that writing a novel is about uncertainty and faith and that your books, like you also just said with Southland, is also like a love letter in one way or another, even if they contain a lot of darkness. Mm. So um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your own, your creative writing process and what is it that initially um, grabs you, speaks to you, makes you sit down to begin writing what will either become a new poem or a new novel. Are you leaving that for, do you want to take it first or are you going to? Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. It's funny. I think, I always think about, you know, before I get to process, that this is a part of process. The question for me, you know, the question of influence is um, kind of like asking me, where are you from, Right. Um, in the sense that, you know, my fromness is, is not singular at all. Um, and it's always changing. And it's always, um, I think, a masquerade in, in terms of, you know, how writers cultivate their own creation myths, right? Um, in terms of my process and process of composition, um, there... It's, there's almost this kind of thing about my air, um, sort of trying to attend to the music of the world, right? Um, being this kind of almost audiophile um, and really being in tune to sounds, right? Uh, all of these sonic landscapes, and that's part of what inspires me, you know, a kind of. Um, you know, I was just, I was talking about being in Toronto. If you're in a streetcar in Toronto, it's like being in a Tower of Babel. All these languages and dialects and Creoles um, just all around you. And that's inspiring. And so for me, it is, um, even though there are, you know, sort of lots of ideas and, and thinking and theorizing and philosophy that my process um, my sense of poetic composition is really, really intuitive, right? It's, I'm really sort of thinking about how the music of the world can instruct me, right? How certain kinds of slippages and ambiguities in language direct me in, in a certain way. And also imagery, right? So, you know, the idea of my book around dusk, you know, there's all these things around liminality, but it, it is really also just that, right, about um, how do I sort of bear witness to and name the texture of that light or that half-light that is dusk, so. Um, how, a, new, a new project. Um, I, I Generally, it has to be around a character or a question or a situation that uh, can obsess me sufficiently you know, for the three or four years or more that it takes to write a book. Mm -hmm. um, and, and often, you know, the, the, a common question is, you know, do you outline or how much do you know ahead of time? And I don't actually know very much ahead of time, mm -hmm. and nor do I want to, because mm -hmm. when I've tried to, when I have actually done things like outline, mm -hmm. it, it tends to kill the mystery. It, mm -hmm. it, just, it just strangles it. So it, generally, it's, I start with a question, you know, I, I write because I have questions, not because I have answers. You know? right. So, for example, for... For wing shooters, you know, as, as you mentioned, there, there's certainly parallels between my life and Mikey's, but 
I left Wisconsin, you know, and I, and I went to, thank God, to, to, and no offense, I mean, I love the Midwest too. I know there's a Wisconsinite here, but, uh, you know, went to a, a, a totally different area and to a very multiracial part of Los Angeles where I felt at home. And it was yeah. the first time where I could, people might not exactly knew where I, know where I fit racially, but I was no longer so other. Um, and so, you know, that, that uh, but that, you know, part of what led to that book was wondering what would have happened if I had stayed, you know, and what, what would have happened. So, and with, you know, you mentioned my, my last book with the, the, the silent film star, um, even though, again, that seems really different, I, I wrote that book or started it at a time when um, I could not sell my second book. Um, I had written my second book, I thought it was much better, Southland. I, I thought it was much better than the first one, and it, you know, we went, I went through the very common experience that writers have, you know, except some of my friends, um, <laughs> of just being rejected everywhere, you know, and I think mm. that it was probably too, too complex of a, you know, of a thing, but, you know, you feel like crap, like, even though you want to be, like, you know, kind of brave and whatever, when you get 20, 30 rejections for work that you think is great, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very good, and I didn't write for more than a year, and mm. so I sat and, and I thought, you know, well, what, what would happen if I just stopped writing? How am I going to feel at age 70 if mm -hmm. I stop writing and give up because of this? Um, and just by chance, I was working, I, I work for a nonprofit in a, in a house that used to be the home of a former silent film star. And that got me very interested in that era. And so even though, and I, I was stunned to discover that there was actually a Japanese silent movie star, which is, you know, at, who is a star and a sex symbol in a very complicated, racialized way mm -hmm. um, at, a, at a time of intense anti-Japanese prejudice. But so I found out about this guy and I kind of wrote my own stuff. Like I created the 73-year-old character who stopped acting in films when he was 30, um, and uh, which is right at the time, it seems ridiculous now, but it was the time that I was having this crisis if I was never going to write again. Mm. And the question that really, you know, fueled that book was what happens to someone when they stop doing what they love? Mm. You know, what do they turn into? Mm. And so even though it seemed like his biography was very different than mine, I infused it with all the, the mm. kind of sense of failure and futility and of love, not knowing, you know, people, you know, the complicated relationship of whether you want people to know, you know, or not that you're a writer because, you know, it, it's, it's either like, oh, that's wonderful, or, oh, why haven't you ever published another book? You know, and, mm. and uh, so that book came from that, that feeling. And uh, ironically enough, after I started writing it, um, then my book that had been rejected everywhere was finally accepted and uh, is still probably my most successful book. So, yeah. No, I would just say for those of you who don't know, Southland is a, an amazing book and has just garnered so many, you know, well-deserved literary awards. I mean, it's, um, so I urge you all to go buy a copy. Um, also, I was just thinking, you know, the love letters piece too. How is Wing Shooters a love letter? Well, <laughs> It is, and it, you know, it, it, the the part I read from Southland is obviously more apparently a love letter, you know, and, and talking mm -hmm. about this neighborhood and, and the the fact that people are leaving it and don't appreciate it in the same ways that they did in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, but Wing Shooters is a love letter in a couple ways. First, primarily, it's a love letter between about a grandchild and grandfather, mm -hmm. and the complications of that love because as much as she worships him and as protective and nurturing as he is as, as he is to her, he's also a complete bigot. And so part of what that love letter is, is what you go through when you realize that the people that you look up to, whether it's parents or teachers or pastors or whomever, are not as uncomplicated and good as you, as you thought, which is a real part of the, the growing up process. But it's also very much a love letter to the, the landscape. Mm 
you know, and have, after having just dis dissed Wisconsin, I can tell you that the, <laughs> the book is full of uh, uh, very loving descriptions of, um, of landscape. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that I, I hope carries through all of my work of, of just this real appreciation of place. And I tend, yeah. Carol can tell you that before we came here, I was just being a complete over-enthusiastic nut about how beautiful it was here. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of beauty in the world, and that's part of what balances the, you know, the difficult stuff. And I try to capture both those elements. I would add, too, I think it's also a sort of love letter to the Springer Spaniel, but I'm sure that's just a coincidence. <laughs> um, I have, I have just one final question, actually, for Christian. Okay, on page 27, running the desk, Sidney Poitier, the great Sidney Poitier, appears as a Cambridge University exam question. So I must ask, what's up with that? Please explain <laughs> and discuss. Um, yeah, so the poem is called uh, Sidney Poitier Studies, or Sidney Poitier Studies, how Bahamian said. Um, so this, if you are... If you come from uh, the, any of the so-called former British colonies, um, you are, you know, from a kind of examination culture, right? These sort of um, these Cambridge examinations, GCEs, A levels, O levels, and now have sort of switched on to more local things. But this exam culture has always fascinated me. Um, as a, uh, as, a, as a kind of imperial apparatus and also, you know, now certainly fully a part of Caribbean culture, this way of evaluating and, and organizing people. Um, but I thought it was an interesting form to use in a poem, right, to sort of appropriate this and this exam question, using it in, as a form to think about this um, very complex cultural figure who um, actually was, grew up in the Bahamas, was born by accident in Miami uh, because his parents were tomato farmers and they went to, took a boat trip to Florida and to sell the tomatoes and he was born premature, right? He grew up in a small, small, small island in the Bahamas called Cat Island where on my Bahamian side my father's family is from and actually his his best friend as a child was my granduncle. So I was always, I've always sort of been fascinated with this figure who grew up as a colonial in this rural Caribbean. It's a British colonial. I grew up with my family as well um, to become um, this figure who's been seen as the greatest black actor in the world, um, completely a touchstone for issues of race masculinity, representation, mm -hmm. um, but to think about how he became what he is, right? Um, and to think about um, the work of self-fashioning of figures, especially in that moment. So I'm kind of playing with all of those, all of those things and the, the examination form, the exam question seemed to be um, an interesting way to do that, to sort of play with um, his own um, lesser acknowledged roots as a Caribbean person growing up under British colonialism. And I think I got a perfect score on the exam, by the way, because I think I answered yes to all the questions. So, <laughs> you know.